So good morning. Thank you all very much for being here today for the final talk in our three-part President's Month series on the presidency of our nation's 40th president, Ronald Reagan. And we're so pleased to have with us this morning as our speaker, Professor Sean Willits from Princeton, where he teaches both undergraduate and graduate courses on American history with a particular focus on the 19th century. Professor Willits is the author of numerous books and no fewer than 400 articles and op-eds over the course of his long and storied career as a historian. Among his most noted books are The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, which was awarded the prestigious Bancroft Prize and was a finalist for the Pulitzer. Also, No Property in Man, which we were just talking about, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding, which was awarded the Cooley Book Prize for the best book on the Constitution by the Georgetown University Law Center. And the basis for this morning's talk, of course, The Age of Reagan, A History, 1974 to 2008, a reconsideration of U.S. politics since Watergate. And I just have to add, I said to him, none of the uh, history professors I had in school uh, were the nominees for Grammy Awards. And Professor Willits has been a nominee twice for a Grammy for his writings on music, Bob Dylan included. He earned his PhD from Yale and undergraduate degrees from Columbia and Balliol College, Oxford. With that, please join me in welcoming Professor Sean Willits. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chloe. That was wonderful. Um, it's wonderful to see you all. And I am going to be talking about Ronald Reagan. I'm not going to sing no Grammy Award stuff at all. Um, I'm going to talk about Reagan, and I'm going to try to, there's a lot to cover, so I'm going to do it very, very quickly, because we don't have much time. But a story to begin. So last night I got in, sort of late-ish, and I went to dinner at the Old Ebbett Grill, which is my favorite place to go to in Washington when I can. Of course, they had no tables. I had to sit at the bar. I'm sitting at the bar. I'm eating my cheeseburger. But I'm also scribbling because I have to speak to This morning, I'm scribbling things down. A guy comes up to me and says, what's that you're writing? What are you writing about? I said, I'm giving a lecture on Ronald Reagan tomorrow morning. He said, Ronald Reagan? I said, tell me about Ronald Reagan. And I said, well, and I gave him, went through the list of all of the things that you know, Reagan had done, fiscal policy, foreign policy, all the rest of it. And he looks at me and says, and I said, and he was one of the great presidents, maybe one of the greatest presidents of the 20th century. And I went down the list and he looked, so why do you like him so much? To which I said, who said anything about liking him? <laughs> now, that actually sets up a tension in looking at Reagan because it's not simple. There's no question, in my mind, that he was one of the three or four most consequential presidents in the 20th century. There's almost no doubt about that, right? I mean, T.R. and Woodrow Wilson, maybe put them as a set, FDR and Reagan. Those are the big monumental presidencies of the 20th century. Um, he's also, though, I think, <clears throat> the most consequential conservative president in US history. I mean, think about the conservative presidents who come along after a period of great reform. You know, John Tyler, I mean, we'll forget about William Henry Harrison, he didn't last that long. John Tyler, you know, Andrew Johnson, Rutherford B. Hayes, Calvin Coolidge. They, they don't rank anywhere near Ronald Reagan in what they managed to get accomplished. So we're talking about a very, very important person in the history of the American presidency and the history of the United States. 
But it's a presidency that's filled with paradoxes and ironies and all kinds of myths that I want to just get out of the way right at the start. Ronald Reagan <clears throat> talked about or governed in a way that was going to try to at least roll back, if not destroy, the New Deal. That's what he was about, was undoing the New Deal. And in doing that, he said that the American people have a rendezvous with destiny. So he's quoting FDR in order to get rid of the New Deal. His second thing was to overthrow the Soviet Empire, the evil empire. And he said he was going to put communism on the ash heap of history, thereby quoting Leon Trotsky in order to overthrow communism. This is a very complicated figure, a very complicated man. Um, there are lots of ironies, lots of things I could go through. I mean, he's the first union president, union president who's elected president of the United States, not exactly a pro-union president of the United States. <clears throat> he believed in small government and a responsible budget. Things went uh, in, in a very different direction. <clears throat> uh, there's a mythology about him being a great popular president, very popular president. The thing about Ronald Reagan was he was really popular when he had to be, which is around election time. But otherwise, he actually ranks sort of in the middle tier of modern presidents, including going back to FDR. Just barely, barely above Nixon, which is, you know, given the... So he's not Mr. Popularity, nor was he Mr. Probity and Honesty. I mean, aside from the, 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 the Nixon administration, actually, there were more people indicted inside the, the Reagan administration than any other presidency in modern times over things, over a whole bunch of things. So there are all these paradoxes in talking about Ronald Reagan. How do we make sense of those paradoxes? I think the first thing, and I, you know, I'm going to bring my book along because I have to show it, right? My editor would be very angry if I didn't show my book. Okay? Um, it came out a long time ago, though, so I've had a chance to reflect on, on what, it was, what I said back then. But one thing I stick to is that you can't understand Ronald Reagan without understanding that he was rooted in the New Deal. Even before he was calling baseball games for the Chicago Cubs, he, 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 he found his voice by doing imitations of Ronald Reagan. I never had the opportunity to meet President Reagan, but apparently he was a great mimic, an amazing mimic. And Ronald Reagan was his hero. Uh, sorry, FDR was Ronald Reagan's hero. He's rooted in that history. And to understand his presidency, I think, we have to understand him not just as a conservative, but as the FDR of modern conservatism, who actually emulated FDR in all kinds of ways, not just with the rendezvous with destiny. You see that right at the point of the beginning of his presidency, getting elected in 1980 and then beginning in 1981. What he was out to do very clearly was to turn the incumbent, Jimmy Carter, into Herbert Hoover. And he was going to be FDR to replace Herbert Hoover, to make Jimmy Carter, the Herbert Hoover of the, of the Democratic Party. And he really succeeded remarkably well. This took some doing. Okay. 1981 was not 1933. We had problems, gas lines, inflation, stagflation. We had all sorts of things happening. But it was not, not 1933. Third of a nation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the Ayatollah Khomeini, yeah, but he was not Adolf Hitler in terms of the, you know, the, the size of the threat that he posed. So the situation that Reagan was inheriting was not the same as the one that FDR inherited, but he made it sound as if it was. Now, 
in some ways he was very fortunate in the president he was actually um, 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 taking over from. Because Jimmy Carter was a man who spoke in terms of what? Complexities and ambiguities. Ronald Reagan spoke in a very simple way of splendid, unbounded future for America. Nothing complex about it. It was there. Jimmy Carter promised you honesty. I know there are people here old enough to remember this, right? I will never lie to you, he said to the American people. I will be honest with you, he said to the American people. Ronald Reagan offered the American people adventure. And if you're choosing between honesty and adventure, most people will take adventure anytime. He managed to do that. And then create you know, a, a mixture, really, of dogma, because he was a very dogmatic man in many ways. He had picked that up in the 1950s and 60s, um, working for General Electric. But of pragmatism as well. He was, a, he was a politician. He was a man who governed. He knew about this, and being the governor of California. And above all, of mythology. <laughs> the mythology of America, the mythology of himself, which he invoked quite well. All right. Well, with that set up, understanding that this is the image that you have to come to terms with to understand Reagan, and, and what's inside Reagan's mind. People sometimes ask me, what was Reaganism? Because the word's used all the time. There was no such thing as Reaganism, except what existed in the mind of Ronald Reagan. He understood what Reaganism was. So that, for example, later on in his presidency, when he was being criticized for being too open to Gorbachev and the Soviet Union, according to the Reaganist, it was perfectly logical for him to be doing this. He was not bound strictly to the dogma of those around him, although there was plenty of dogma of, of people around him. He was very much sui generis. He was very much of himself. But the question now I think we have to talk about very quickly is, well, so what? What happened? What actually happened as opposed to the mythology? We can run it down. This is not you know, a um, um, matter of interpretation. It's pretty simple. On uh, the domestic side, he made extraordinary changes, introduced extraordinary changes um, to the way that uh, government had been run. Even though the government did not dwindle, nevertheless, policies changed dramatically. Above all, and he himself said this, the most important thing that he did was to change the fiscal structure of the United States government, the tax policies, supply-side economics. The idea that basically cutting taxes is the way to future prosperity. And indeed, boy, did he cut taxes. At least taxes on the people who were most affluent. The, the top marginal rate, which was 70% when he came in, was dropped right away to 50% the 1981 tax bill, and then in 1986, the tax reform bill occurred as well, which solidified many of those things, although it also changed as well. It led to a massive redistribution of wealth and income to the top. His uh, economic advisor, David Stockman, was famous for once having admitted that what was called supply-side economics really was trickle-down economics that you, you know, enrich the rich and the rich will, en 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 will enrich the poor, which never happens. Or it can happen in theory, but in fact, you know, uh, in investment, in fact, did not occur in the way that he expected it to happen. There was a line 
<clears throat> that said that you know um, um, a, a rising tide floats all boat. Oh, this is a, a, a rising tide floats all yachts. <laughs> was the idea about supply side economics. It also led to massive deficits, the deficits that we're still dealing with even today, right? Which, I mean, uh, Senator Moynihan from my native state of New York, you know, said that it was intentionally this way, that he was trying to basically bust the American government so they'd never be able to do anything ever again. I'm not sure that that was what exactly was in Ronald Reagan's mind, but he certainly did create deficits that made it much more difficult to come up with any other program except funding the military. It's sometimes referred to as military Keynesianism. There was the recovery out of the economy that he inherited, and it happened. By 1984, the, the, the economy is booming in a way that people could never have imagined by 1980, as originally as 1982, the depths of a recession. A recession just gets back to popularity. In 1982, at the end of 1982, Reagan's popularity, you think Biden, they say President Biden is low, he was in the 30s, Reagan was. But that was two years before the election. During the election, he was gonna have one of the greatest landslides in American history. That was in part because of the recovery. Now, there's little evidence, as far as historians are concerned, about that, that the program that he adopted with uh, the trickle down or supply side actually worked that magic. The magic came mostly from Paul Volcker, Paul Volcker who was through the Treasury and, 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 and adopted, basically he contracted the money supply. And that's one way to get rid of inflation. You cause a recession. But then when the recession's at its, you know, has done its job, step back on the gas, the economy goes off. With Reagan, it's very interesting. There are these figures that really deserve much more attention than they get. Paul Volcker's one of them. Now I say that because not because Paul Volcker came to teach in Princeton, not because Paul Volcker actually lived in the house that I lived in for a while. I have lots of reasons to like Paul Volcker. He was very tall, he was very, you know, but I think the record is clear on all of that. Other things, deregulation. Vast deregulation, in many ways undoing some of the things that had been overregulated, but then on maybe doing some things that were not so overregulated. The, the, I think the legacy of this, there are many legacies of this in terms of antitrust law, I won't go into all of them, but one of the things you'll recognize is the fairness doctrine and the getting rid of the fairness doctrine, which is a form of deregulation. So that the communications, the communications that we have today in political commentary would have been impossible without the elimination of the fairness doctrine which was very, very important to conservatives at the time because they thought that Walter Cronkite was you know, a raging liberal. Raging liberals disagreed. Okay, what else? Unions. I mean, he was the union president who really went after the unions, beginning with the breaking of the PATCO strike in 1981. Um, you know, um, I don't have the figures in front of me, but if you look at the, you know, the, when I was a young person coming up in the world, Union rates in the 50s and 60s were at something like 33, 34% of the private sector were, uh, workers were unionized. By the time Reagan was over with, we were already on the downward decline that we see today. The courts, this is very, very important. People who look back on the Reagan administration sometimes think about the, the, the Robert Bork nomination. You all remember that, the Robert Bork nomination? And how you know, he failed because the liberals got up and it's even become a verb to be borked. I'm sure in this town you all know about being what it's like to be borked. Now, the fact was that that was the exception to the rule. 
with his um, attorney general at Meese, in line with Leonard Leo still around, the Federalist Society, there was a, a conscious decision made to appoint more and more conservatives to the federal bench. And that is very much with us today, and we're seeing the fruits of that today. Um, and what the Supreme Court looks like now, but not just the Supreme Court, it's the entire federal judiciary. That was an important thing that he did. On civil rights, there was real regression. No question about it. People talk about how Reagan, very early on, one of his very first speeches in 1980 campaign was in Neshoba County, uh, Mississippi, where he went to Philadelphia, the town where you know, Goodman, um, Schwerner, and Cheney had been murdered in 1964, um, 64, yeah, 64, um, and gave a speech in which he said, I'm all for states' rights. Well, that was part of the Republican Party changing itself, but nevertheless, he installed a civil rights division at the Department of Justice that was duty-bound to roll back many of the civil rights laws that had come about, especially in the 70s and 80s, in the aftermath of the, of the, of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. William Bradford Reynolds and a young Clarence Thomas really went after those laws, or did their best. They didn't do as much as they aimed to do, but they did their best to contract, especially things that were concerned, or that had gotten the um, reputation of being concerned with affirmative action. They actually politicized affirmative action. Foreign policy. Well, we begin with the Reagan Doctrine. What was the Reagan Doctrine? He never used the term. The White House never used that term. But the Reagan Doctrine, which actually invented by Charles Krauthammer, a local um, a columnist you may remember. Um, Charles invented the term. It meant basically that we were no longer going to contain um, the, the communism. We were no longer going to contain the Soviet Union. We were actually going to roll back the gains that had been made, that they had made in Eastern Europe and elsewhere, especially in Central America, to a lesser extent in the Middle East. It was actually undoing. We're not just going to contain, we're going to undo. Much more aggressive approach to what was going on. His um, future national security um, advisor, Richard Allen, once said, what are you going to do about the Russians? Reagan's reported to have said back to him, it's really simple. We win and they lose. What do you think of that? Well, in fact, that was prophetic. <laughs> I mean, you know, we won and they lost, kind of. Um, although the results may not be completely in, but that's another story. So that was a very aggressive foreign policy, which, you know, had rather, shall we say, uneven results. I mean, it didn't exactly work out with the Middle East, in which we started out by basically um, doing all we could against Iran. I mean, Iran was the, the great Satan for us. They are the people who would capture our hostages. They were terrible. The Iranians, Ayatollah, so who was our hero? Saddam Hussein. So they went to the Iraqis. So beginning a process that has not been, um, shall we say, um, fortunate. In uh, Central America, there was a bloodbath. Um, El Salvador, elsewhere, the war against um, uh, the Nicaraguans, the Sandinistas. Um, say what you will about the Sandinistas. Um, in the end, it ended up costing the Americans in many ways more than it did them. Um, when you think about all the blood that was spilled, but you also think about the fact that the, the foreign policy regarding Nicaragua was going to lead to the greatest scandal of the Reagan administration years, which was the Iran-Contra affair. You know, the greatest constitutional crisis in many ways until more recently. Okay. So foreign policy, now, with respect to Middle 
uh, Central and, and, and Eastern Europe, actually the Reagan administration in its anti-communism really gave a great deal of encouragement to the forces that are eventually going to rise up to overthrow the regime. In that respect, I think, you know, there's something really very rich in what the Reaganites were doing. Um, I, a friend of mine named Adam Micknick, you may know the name, he was one of the leaders, young student leaders, allied with Lech Wałęsa in, in solidarity. And he was an important character. He wrote a great deal at the time. And um, I once asked him what was going on. He says, well, you know, we love Ronald Reagan. It was only when I left Poland and came to America that I realized that Ronald Reagan was not the guy I wanted. But, but at the time, he truly was a hero, along with the Pope, in Central and Eastern Europe. That is really something that's important. But it leads to the greatest achievement at all, of all, I think. And in many ways, this is what makes Ronald Reagan, as I said in my book, the, one of the most consequential presidents in our history. Sorry? How'd you know? You're reading my mind. Yes. Well, not so much Gorbachev, but his, his approach to the Soviet Union. Um, backing off of what had been his early policy, you know, uh, which was, you know, uh, we can talk about it. I mean, the, the SS-20, uh, putting nuclear arms in, in Europe, backing NATO to the fullest, but then noticing that something changed. Something really did change. That was outside of his dogma. That was outside of his ideology. That was outside of what his friends were telling him. I mean, my good friend, even, George Will, was telling him, you know, Gorbachev's a phony. He's just another Stalinist. Reagan had a different idea. Why did he have a different idea? One, one of the most important secretaries of state in American history, I believe, is George Shultz. And George Shultz, long before 1983, was already bringing in Dobrynin, bringing in the possibilities for opening up a new kind of channel, because George Shultz could see what was coming on down the line in a way that most American policymakers did not. It was not going to simply be, you know, a succession of Andropovs in the Kremlin. Something was happening, and George Shultz understood that, but also started opening things up. There was Reagan's own fear of nuclear annihilation. People didn't understand that. People thought of him as this, you know, bloodthirsty American who's going to blow over. No. He genuinely had a, a fear that if things got out of hand, the world would destroy it. The human race would destroy itself. And that was very, that was foremost in his mind even before, even as he was talking about the evil empire, he did not want to see it end up in nuclear war. He wanted to see it happen a different way. He was going to build up American armaments, as he thought, and build, uh, force the, 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 the Russians into bankruptcy, and that's where the Cold War was going to end. That's not what happened, but nevertheless, he feared nuclear annihilation. Iran-Contra actually had a, a flip um, 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 result. It's a terrible constitutional crisis. There's a whole chapter about it in my book. It's very complicated, but it's also very shocking what happened. Nevertheless, after Iran-Contra, Reagan, with the advice of his wife, Nancy, who's another sort of hidden force in all of this, got rid of the zealots. Oliver North, he called him an American hero and showed him the door. And then he called him an American hero again, but he was not in the room. Howard Baker was going to be there. It was, he got rid of the zealous and put in the pragmatists. And that included foreign policy. And that was just at the moment when he embraced Gorbachev. 
Oh, the one other person who was important of all this was Margaret Thatcher. Because it was Thatcher who Reagan, you know, it was a, an, a political love affair, if ever there was one. It was she that told uh, Reagan, Gorbachev is a man you can deal with. You can do business with this man, do it. It was very important in shaping Reagan's thinking vis-a-vis -vis Gorbachev. Now, there's an argument about who did more to end the Cold War, Ronald Reagan or Mikhail Gorbachev, and we can talk about that later. <clears throat> but that's, the, that's a very quick run-through of the, what, 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 what Reagan accomplished and didn't accomplish. What is his legacy for today? People often ask me, sometimes ask me, when they, when they remember that I did this book. If Ronald Reagan was back to life and looked at politics today, what would he think? And it's the same thing that I think anybody who you know, didn't survive into the very far into the 21st century <laughs> would look at today's politics and just not recognize it. Just not recognize it. He would have said, huh? I mean, he would have recognized you know, um, some, you know, what do we call them, um, blood brothers, as it were, and blood sisters. Um, he, he would look at Mitch McConnell and he could recognize Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell, they're there. But a lot of the rest of the Republican Party, and for that matter, a lot of the Democratic Party, some of it, he would say, what, what, what world are we in? What world are we in? Um, although, you know, <clears throat> Republican politicians, Republican policymakers, Republican candidates for the presidency will always pay obeisance to Reagan. Reagan is their great hero. You know, how many of you like Ronald Reagan? Everybody raises, even, even the, the former president raises his hand. Everybody loves Ronald Reagan. But the politics of the day, especially in the Republican Party, are not the politics of Ronald Reagan. They simply aren't. They are the politics of Pat Buchanan and the politics of Newt Gingrich in a different kind of sense, but really of Buchanan. Uh, Buchanan, who, who, who Reagan made, actually, his um, um, communications director in 1985, you know, once said, the really big space in American politics that's not being looked at is everything way to the right of Ronald Reagan. That was the right that, that Buchanan was trying to foster, which he did in 1992 when he ran against George H.W. Bush. But that legacy, I don't think that, that, that Donald Trump really spent a lot of time reading the St. Louis Globe Democrat or figuring out who, who, who Pat Buchanan was. But that strain inside the party, which was recessive, at least among the establishment, not necessarily among the rank and file, who really loved his speech in 1992, by the way, Buchanan's speech. But, um, but that's, that strain, that's what we have today. It's not what Ronald Reagan stood for. It's something very different. Um, and yet, and yet, and I'll really close with this. I wouldn't do a lot of time, by the way. Okay, good. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll close with this. Oh, and then, of course, Newt Gingrich. One of the problems the Republican Party faced, I think, was that Reagan, as I said at the start, Reagan really was one of a kind. There was nobody inside the Republican Party or even on planet Earth who could reproduce Ronald Reagan's mixture of conservative politics, pragmatic governance when necessary, um, and, and sheer charm the charm of, of FDR, right? Because he was, you know, he was, he was an old man back then. Back then, 70 was old. 
Now that I'm 72, I say it's not so old. <laughs> and when people say the current president's really old, I say he's not that old. Um, but he remembered. Much as the current president actually remembers, an era before the one that most people are living in now, much as the current president remembers what it was like under the Cold War, Reagan understood what it was like under the New Deal in ways that no, very few people did. There was nobody who was going to be able to, be, to, to succeed Ronald Reagan successfully. The one person they thought of was Jack Kemp coming out, but he turned out to be not the man to do it. He just couldn't pull off. He wasn't charming. Great football player. Not as charming as Ronald Reagan. Um, and then there was nobody else, which is one of the reasons why his vice president, who he picked in order to shore up the establishment wing of the party, George H.W. Bush, becomes the next president. And we all know what happens then. It starts a whole civil war within the Republican Party, in which the victor at the moment is going to be Newt Gingrich, the Speaker of the House. But it's kind of like I say, it's like the French Revolution. Those of you who remember your history, it's like the French Revolution without Thermidor. It keeps on happening. The guillotine never gets put away. Somebody keeps getting, you know, it's a succession. Tom DeLay, uh, John Bain, I mean, you name them. They all end up being not radical enough for the base. And you end up where we are now. Um, so Reagan was indispensable to that project. And nobody could quite realize that. Which in the end, I think, was one of the reasons precisely why Buchanan was going to end up becoming the inheritor of the mantle of Ronald Reagan, even though it was very, very different. Spiritually, not himself, but spiritually, in, in another person's body, if you will. Okay. But if current politics are not the politics of Reagan, where, where do we put Reagan in all of it? Still, I think, there are ways in which Reagan's legacy still informs American politics. Um, and not mostly for the good, in my view. The tax policies, the redistribution of wealth to the top, um, not only did it put, a, put a, a, a lid on the possibilities of liberal reform, old-fashioned liberal reform, but it, 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 there's no question that it increased inequality. And it, it, insofar as inequality is one of the great, I mean, it's become kind of a shibboleth. I mean, getting, I kind of get bored when I hear about inequality anymore because I hear about it so much. Nevertheless, it's a real thing. It's really happened. The middle class is being hollowed out in all sorts of ways. Reagan's partly responsible for that. Or Reagan established policies that are eventually going to make that, I think, much more prevalent than it would otherwise have been. Race relations, not great these days. Hmm? A lot of anger, a lot of suspicion along racial lines. Ronald Reagan's policies did not exactly help that. Ronald Reagan's policies and anything planted the seed for what was going to come later on. We could go down the list, deregulation, fairness doctrine, all those conjuries of things. But what Ronald Reagan contributed, and this is on the downside, most of all was that he made the culture wars central to American politics. Now, in this respect, he and Buchanan were actually on the same page. Although it wasn't so much he, it was the people who were his political advisors who were going to get him you know, to be president. Remember that it was in 1979 that the moral majority was founded. It was in 1979 that Jerry Falwell became an aspect of our politics, a former segregationist who had you know, railed against Martin Luther King Jr. It was a combination of 
Christian evangelicals, evangelical Christians of a particular kind, you know, it was, this, it was, the, it was the, the transformation of the, SP, of the Southern Baptist Conference from a, you know, normal religious group into a hard right-wing conservative group. That process was going, on, was, was going to feed Ronald Reagan's political success. There are also, there are many other elements beside all of that that was going on. There's Paul Weyrich. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that are happening. But the culture wars are going to become, do become much more central. Now, Ronald Reagan actually, personally, I don't think, was much of a zealot on these issues. There were people who even called him a closet tolerant. You know, he didn't want to let you know, but, you know, he, he was friends with Rock Hudson. He wouldn't talk about Rock Hudson, but he was friends with Rock Hudson. He was a decent human being. He wasn't a cultural warrior, but and, you know, and he made sure that when the first anti-Roe v. Wade demonstrations occurred, he'd always appear by telephone. You know, he'd always call up and say, here I am, I support you, and hang up. He wouldn't actually be at the rally. He did just enough, but that just enough began, I think, a process that we're living with today. The polarization, the um, distress, the violence that we're seeing today. Um, insofar as, you know, I think, you know, um, what begins as the moral majority could end up with Christian nationalism. And that's not to blame Jerry Falwell for it. That's just to say that it was a process that was begun then, but it sure has happened. It sure is out there. That is rooted, I think, in the, in the, um, in the presidency of Ronald Reagan. But then comes, you know, and, 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 and that plus bringing in the, the, the conservative white south. You know, I mean, Jesse Helms is as much a figure of the age of Reagan as anybody else, okay? But then we come to foreign policy, and that's where it gets a little bit more interesting. Because I think that the Reagan legacy is actually bifurcated. There's actually two of them. One is what we come, you know, associate with neoconservatism, which is going to lead, I'm using shorthand now because I know I'm running out of time, which is going to lead to the invasion of Iraq. Okay? That's one strand of what was going to come out of Ronald Reagan's foreign policy. But the other side of it, which is much more idealistic, was the internationalist idea of freedom. And that's a, um, a, a part of the um, um, Reagan legacy, which has really kind of vanished from Reagan's party. Not completely. Not completely at all. But there has been, with the Buchananization, if that's a verb I can use, of the Republicans, there has been a retreat from the old pro-NATO internationalism that came out of World War II. No question about it. There's been a retreat towards isolationism, if that's a word we can use. The very term America first was invented by Charles Lindbergh in 1940 in order to try and convey the fact that we are not going to be the policemen of the world. We're not going to be anything in the world. We're going to be ourselves and let the world go to hell. That is much more a part of current politics especially inside the Republican Party, than it was under Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan would have looked at that aghast. And you can see that, you know. You can see that especially around, I have my little, my little thing here, around, around Ukraine. Um, you know, the Republican caucus is actually much more uh, pro-Ukraine than people might imagine if you only listen to the people who are the loudest. Um, if you listen to Mitch McConnell, if you listen to Lindsey Graham, who is a great supporter of Trump's, they're all for this. They get it. Um, and there, actually, I think, you know, for a while there, I was thinking, maybe America's coming to its senses thanks to Vladimir Putin. Um, because there was a, 
I, I just wrote a little piece about this. You know, in my neighborhood in Princeton, you know, of course we had a demonstration after the invasion, right? We all got, the, you know, there were, the, there were people from Ukraine there who were expressing their anguish. There were people from Russia, anti-Putin Russians, who were expressing their, their, their you know, shame at what was going on. We all, that's, that's Princeton. Outside of Princeton, however, voted very heavily pro-Trump. And if you drove out to Princeton in 2022, um, you would still see the old little cardboard signs, Trump-Pence 2020, you know, it's an act of defiance. But after February 24th, you'd also see yellow and blue flags. I was thinking, ah, there's some connection here which is actually kind of hopeful about where America might be headed. That is also the hopeful side of Ronald Reagan's legacy to believe in freedom as a concept that was not just restricted to America, the United States, but was an internet, it was universal. It was Reagan's universalism. It was Reagan's sort of Jeffersonian side, if you will, um, coming out, which was that freedom, human rights. Jimmy Carter was all for this, but he couldn't express it in the way that was, that, that connected. Reagan did that. Reagan did that very, very well. So in conclusion, I'd say, um, you know, that, that Ronald Reagan certainly, although things don't look a lot like the Reagan world that we knew back in the 1980s, he certainly set a tone for politics that has lasted for a generation and more, beginning with the fiscal policies, but not just that. At a moment when sort of New Deal, great society, liberalism was in disarray, was falling apart, couldn't answer the questions in the moment, which it couldn't. When the Republican establishment was weakened by Watergate, you know, um, they were talking about changing the name of the party at one point. Um, Ronald Reagan came in and seized, seized history. And, you know, as best he could, it was by no means um, um, total, but as best he could, he bent history in his direction. To that extent, Ronald Reagan is still very, very much alive, and his legacy is still very much alive. It's up to the rest of us to figure out what to do with it. With that, I'll close. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Questions? Yes, ma'am. Uh, thank you so much. Oh, no, before you ask, because you all know a lot more about this subject than I do. I'm very frightened at the moment, okay? <laughs> Because you're here, you're in Washington, you know this stuff. So if I don't know the answer to something, I will be honest and just hope that you can find it somewhere else. I okay. my question was here. Oh, it's okay. Uh, my, my sense is that President Reagan had a reputation at the end of the day that compromise was better than inaction, mm -hmm. especially his relationships with Congress and mm -hmm. with O'Neill famously. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious if you think that how, A, did he thread the needle to do that in light of the right wing kind of sitting on his shoulder watching what he was doing? And do you think some of those compromises fed into their anger, which created... Mm, that. That's an interesting question. It's a good question. I mean, yes, his showing up by telephone did not make the people very happy, you know. Um, but yes, you know, Ronald Reagan was a, you know, was an ideologue who knew how to govern. And, and so he had these, you know, sometimes crazy ideas, actually, like trees cause pollution and stuff. I mean, or, um, you know, remember? Some odd ideas out there. Um, he, he has doubts about natural selection. Well, we can talk about natural selection, but he didn't, wasn't so sure about that. Um, but but, but the, first of all, part of the answer is the right wing then was not the right wing now. 
I mean, it did not have the kind of force that it has on, on current Republican policymakers and, and, and you know, people there. So, so Ronald Reagan could count on the right. Where were they going to go? You know, were they going to go to George Bush? No. So he was it. So he didn't have to worry about them. He could take them for granted, which may in the end have hurt him, his cause down the line, but at the moment, no. But threading the needle, um, yeah, I mean, Reagan, Reagan understood. He, he had understood this as governor of California. When he became governor of California, he knew nothing about what it meant to be an executive of any kind, except for a union. Um, um, in 1966, 67, he was asked by somebody, some reporter, what are you going to do as governor? What are you going to do with down in turn Sacramento? To which he replied, I don't know. I've never played a governor before. <laughs> but he was very astute politically. And he was astute politically coming out of his, his presidency of the Street Actors Guild and coming through the whole McCarthyite business. Um, and he knew how to, how to negotiate. I won't even call it compromise. It's about a negotiation. If you begin with the idea that you're negotiating something, not out to win something, but negotiating, you're going to end up in a different place. And he understood that. And he was a negotiator. Um, and you know, he did all sorts of things that people don't remember him doing. I mean, he actually passed a big pro-abortion bill, as it were, in, in, in California while he was governor. Or just changing the, the rules. It was, you know, was, was it before? Yeah, it was before Roe v. Wade. But, um, you know, but that was a political move. Um, so that, you know, yes, Ronald, Ronald Reagan's still in, inside the normal round of American politics, what we think of as American politics, um, in which there is room for negotiation, in which you do have two sides that, res that, that at least nominally respect each other. <laughs> Um, and, you know, the, 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 um, Chris Matthews wrote a whole book about this. The respect between Reagan and Tip O'Neill was an example of all that. You know, two Irishmen. I mean, Reagan's Irishness was not, Tip O'Neill's was solid. Reagan's was a little bit fictive. But nevertheless, they would get together and have a glass of Bushmills or something, you know, every once in a while. I mean, that was not, that was in Reagan's style as well as his politics. And, uh, you know, f forget it, right? I mean, this town, yikes. Although that started in the 90s, too, when I was last living here around the clock. You could feel it. You could feel it already changing. Got time for one more. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't, I'm going on too long myself. Please. Right. Yes, sure. Um, a few years ago, my wife and I visited the Reagan Library. Mm -hmm. One of the things I was struck by there was a book, uh, one of the artifacts there, of notes he had taken as he was going around from town to town, chicken dinner to chicken dinner, as a spokesman for GE, right. writing down lots of apples. Could you talk a little bit about the education of a young man, or not so young man, at that point, and how that played out? In terms that was absolutely crucial to his political education, what happened in those years. It was after he had um, given up the presidency of the Screen Actors Guild. He was no longer really an actor. He had really ended his career as an actor. He was, see, he was going to be on Death Valley Days. Remember that on TV? Okay. 20 Mule Team Borax. Um, but, but, um, but, but he got the job with, with, with General Electric. General Electric would send him around from plant to plant. As, as you say, chicken dinner, but I mean, these small groups that he intimately involved. But he was also going around with people who were beginning to teach him the hard right lexicon and you know, um, the anti-Roosevelt. This is where he transform was transformed from an FDR-FDR into an anti-FDR-FDR. It all occurred in that period. And he gave these speeches over and over and over again. They were going to morph into what became known as the speech, which he gave in 1964 in support of Gar Barry Goldwater. People said that if he had run, 
if he had won in 64, he might have even beaten Johnson. I don't believe that, but nevertheless, he was much more effective at getting the message across. That was all honed um, as, as he went around with, with, with General Electric. Um, and, uh, and also, I think, you know, it's one thing to be a screen actor and have no audience in front of you. People don't realize that it's not quite the same thing as being a, a, a real act, a, a theatrical actor, where you like like I am right now, you know, feeding off an audience and having an audience feed off of you. He got that, and he was able to. He learned how to do that, which then, of course, projected very well on television. So that was part of it as well, was his ability then to become. And and he would he was really good at public speaking. I mean, he would have these things on little index cards with all of these right wing nostrums and stuff. Most of them pulled out of Reader's Digest. And, 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 and he'd memorize them, and he could, you know, he could spout them, and he'd look perfectly natural. He was really good at that. So in both in terms of style and in terms of substance, in terms of his transformation intellectually into a highly dogmatic conservative on all sorts of issues, that was, that was it. The only other small thing I would add is that the Screen Actors Guild, his, his, his running with the communists in, in Hollywood made him very angry. And, you know, and that was real. I mean, there was a real struggle. It wasn't all made up by the right wing, by any means. So I think that that is what solidified his anti-communism. Um, just seeing how the communists operated uh, politically made him dedicated to, to, to ending it. Everyone, please join me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.